seven weeks about heroic characteristics of Elijah. And so, you know, obviously, um, I, I thought, heroes, what, um, what kind of heroes do we have, right? What, what, what are our heroes? And some of us, sorry, and now some of us, some of our heroes, right, uh, um, top left, for, for, for many years, those are mine. I had, I had thousands and thousands and thousands of comic books in, in milk crates, milk cartons. Um, until my mother one day, in, in her zeal to clean, got rid of them because they were just little comic books. <sighs> yes, so um, I may still be recovering from that. Um, but that's the, her the, the hero for some. If you ask some of these kids what their heroes are, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you that, right? Um, top right. Some folks find musicians and, and, and bands and entertainers heroic. Um, some others, right, we're getting, a, we're, we're getting to presidential election season, right, bottom left. Some of you have, a, have your, your favorite politician, um, and, and, and he, he may be heroic or she may be heroic to you. Um, I feel badly for you if that's your hero, however that is. Um, and then the bottom left, right, we have preachers. I was so tempted to, 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 to put Mark's, Pastor Mark's face here, but, uh, um, but we have our preachers here, right? We have our, our, our ministers, right? Well, some of us, right, we have, we have our favorite, right? We have our favorite theologians, right? I have, I, I have, a, I have a bookshelf at home, several bookshelves. And you, if you look at my bookshelf, you'll know who my favorite theologians are. It's the one that has multiple volumes, books, entire shelves, this one guy, right? Yeah, we have our heroes. And so um, some of us have different heroes, right? Some of us are sports heroes. Some of us are sports people. So, you know, Michael Jordan and, and Tom Brady or whoever else. Um, <clears throat> and we get more serious, right? We, we, get, we get a little bit less, uh, I guess, comical, a little, a little more serious here. And, and so some of our heroes are, are fallen heroes. Some of our heroes are veterans. Some of our heroes, right, top right, um, have given their lives to to something more than, than entertainment, to something more than politics, to something more than music, to something more than, than, than sport. Then bottom left, this one is uh, close to home for me. I was in New York, so I lived in New York City, born and raised. I was, I was there for that. Um, I was there for 9-11. And that's a picture of the firemen. Um, all of those firemen you see in that picture made their way into the building. They did not make their way out. And so for some of us, those are our heroes. And the bottom right, um, family, right? My biggest hero, right, from a non-spiritual perspective, right, uh, is, is my father, right? He's, 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 my father wasn't a man of many words. One of many words, not, 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 not um, and sometimes that was a scary thing, right, especially when, when I knew I'd done something wrong, but, he wasn't a man of, 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 of many words, but he was a man of action. Um, you know, in, in, in the culture in New York City, South Bronx, where the neighbor to my left, the neighbor to my right, the neighbor in front, literally their fathers weren't with them. My father was always home. He never spent the night out. He showed us to work, to, to, to save. There was always food on the table, right? There was always shoes on my feet. Granted, he would buy them two sizes too big. Um, <laughs> And he was like, you grow into them. But nonetheless, he provided. Um, and so when we, when, we, when we look at heroes, um, you know, we, we define them in different ways. So what is, what is a hero? And if we look at the classical definition, right? We look at classical definition. We look at a hero is a mythological or legendary figure, often from div of divine descent, right? Like a Achilles or a Hercules or something to that effect endowed with great strength or great ability. Or an illustrious warrior, right? Fighter, one who shows great courage. But to simplify that, right? To, to, to simplify that, for, for me to understand it better, I'm not a guy with, that deals with, 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 with big words. Someone who puts himself at risk for a cause nobler and greater than his own. That's my definition. It's, 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 it's a hero, is someone who puts him or herself at risk for a cause nobler and greater than his or her own. And, and, and that definition, right, that type of hero embodies grace, embodies generosity, embodies sacrifice, embodies service, 
But that, that definition clashes with our cultural definition, right, of heroism, right? You, 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 I just showed you the pictures, right? The first, I don't know, six, seven pictures of what today's culture thinks are heroes, right? Today, right, it's, 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 it clashes with the definition of heroism. And, and it's not surprising. Biblically, that's not surprising. The word hero, right, in English, in the English language, is only, used, is only found in the Bible three times. Twice in Isaiah, once in Jeremiah, and the three of them are terrible. <laughs> the two of them are, are negative connotations. You do not want to apply hero to yourself in Isaiah or in Jeremiah. It, it, it points in the other direction. That makes sense. That makes sense, right? That clashes with culture's definition of a hero. Nowadays, you're a hero if you come out against God's design and creation. Nowadays, you're a hero if you go and mutilate yourself and change your gender. Now you're a courageous hero if you cover up these actions on school-aged children and hide them from their parents so parents are not involved in those decisions. Those are today's heroes. Those are our culture's courageous people. <laughs> now, I remember in 2008, a movie came out. The plot was a story of a billionaire industrialist and genius inventor. Let me see if you can guess who this is. And he's kidnapped, and he's forced to build a devastating weapon. Instead, right, using his intelligence, his know-how, his ingenuity, he builds a high-tech suit of armor. Oh, you got it. All right. <laughs> right? And so he, he does this, right? And he vows to protect the world as Iron Man, right? And, and, and he's, a, he's, he's a billionaire. He's a genius. He's an engineer. Right? He's described many, many, many places as a, the word they use. He's a billionaire playboy, arrogant, incorrigible. So, <laughs> Canadian, <laughs> self-absorbed, and, <laughs> and appears to put himself at risk for a cause nobler than himself, but really the cause is about himself. Matter of fact, they, they, they created a series of movies based on his being all about himself. And, right? But that's the culture. It's become the biggest collection of movies ever. The Marvel Cinematic Universe has surpassed all the big ones, Star Wars, you name it. Because that's what society and culture looks for. Many of our heroes end up that way. They're absorbed, right, by their own accomplishments, but not understanding fully or what it truly means to live for others. Over the next seven weeks, we will have an opportunity to study the life of a man who was a hero, but who was a humble hero, who was a hero who understood that it was not about him, who was a hero who understood that there was something much greater and much more important than what he wanted or what he needed or what he desired. And obviously, that hero is named Elijah. So let's look at our outline. So, <clears throat> I grayed out some of the outline, and I did it uh, erroneously. But the outline, we're looking at three basic points here. Looking at Elijah, God's man. Elijah, God's plan. And Elijah, the lesson. And so we're going to see, we're going to take a look at Elijah's background, character, and highlights. And then we're going to look at um, why. Why now? Why at the time that Elijah appears and he shows up, why was it necessary? What was the importance of the timing of Elijah's kind of revelation or, 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 or entry into the scene um, in Israel? And then the third is Elijah's lesson. How can God use us and, how, and what is God calling us to do? So let's move forward. Um, who was Elijah? Well, let's talk about his background a little bit. Elijah was, first and foremost, his, his name Elijah, right? His name is a compound, his name is a compound of two words, El and Yah. And so basically it's 
God is Lord, right? Or when you, when you kind of translate it correctly, it's literally my God, El, my God, and Yah the Lord. And it comes out to be the Lord is my God. So that's what his name means. The Lord is my God. Let's, let's, do, not let, do not miss that. The Lord is my God. It's pertinent in the story of Elijah. His name is very important here because it, is what it, it represents what he stands for. It represents his mission. It represents his calling. It represents the passion. It represents his conviction. The Lord is my God. And we'll see that throughout these next seven weeks. Now, his birthplace. Where was he born? Well, he's kind of come out of nowhere, really. So if you, if you look at these maps here, um, this is the, 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 the kind of the, 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 the Middle East, kind of Jerusalem, Samaria, right? This is a, a, the Judean, uh, Judean Peninsula here. Um, and we see, right, he was born in a town called Tishbe. He's Elijah the Tishbite, right? So they believe that, that, that Tishbe is right here in this area here in Gilead. Now, they don't know exactly where that is. The Bible doesn't actually say. No one really knows. There's no historians. There's no historical evidence of that town. But for argument's sake, that's a good spot. So that's a good spot. It was most probably a few miles right east of the Jordan, um, 25 to 30 miles uh, east, northeast of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel at the time. And so this is where, right in this area, is where we find Elijah coming out of the blue, right? He's from there. They know he's from there. They know the town, and that's all we need to know. So he shows up out of the blue. Now, not only does he show up out of the blue, but some other oddities in regards to Elijah. Not just the town we can't find, right? Um, he gets no introduction. We begin the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, and it's just Elijah speaking. There's no setup. There's no backstory, right? There's no genealogy. We don't know who his parents are. It's like he's an orphan, right? He just comes out of the blue. Um, and so we don't know much about Elijah. What we do know is, though, if he was in the town of Gilead as he was from there, uh, he was probably used to roughing it, to mountainous, half-desert kind of climate, not the easiest place to live, um, he was probably used to being outdoors. I imagine him. This is my Elijah has a beard for sure. Um, and is real scruffy and round. Um, you know, and, 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 and my vision of Elijah, he's, he's wearing like skins and, and, and he's, 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 a, he's a strong, big, burly guy. That's, that's, that's my perception. of I could be wrong. I wasn't there. But that's, when I see Elijah, that's what I see. And at least that's the picture that I get from his character. And so, speaking of character, we do know through various passages, and we're going to get to some Bible today, um, <clears throat> right? We do know that he fears God. We do know that he is a fearless reformer. We know, based on uh, the text between 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 2, which is all you'll hear of Elijah in his actual ministry, he was a prophet. He was a man dedicated to prayer. He walked with God. He knew God. He was a man of integrity. He was, he was, a, straight, he was a straight shooter <laughs> in more ways than one. Um, his call to righteousness troubled sinners. He could be abrasive. He could be crass. You don't believe me? Read the passage when he goes on Mount Carmel. And he's telling them to go pray, right? He's telling the prophets of Baal to go pray to their gods. And he, he's not listen, Maybe he's in the bathroom. Right? Maybe, maybe you sit on the toilet somewhere. You, right, scream a little louder. Not, not something we would typically expect from the man of God. Right? It's not, I mean, it's not, that's, that, that's not typical message content on a Sunday morning here at McGregor. He wasn't that kind of preacher. Right? He could be abrasive. Not only that, he, 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 he didn't play. He didn't play games. Right? He, he, and you'll study, we'll study this later, too. Right, he gets, he gets an invitation from a king who wants to kill him. So some 50 guards and their captain shows up, and he, he, he sends down fire. He didn't ask God to send down fire. He sent down fire, and God sent it. And then the next group came and did it again. 
because he was afraid. He's an interesting character. Interesting man. Seems to be a loner. We don't see him accompanied until the very end of his ministry. And that was at God's behest, not his. He also struggled with discouragement. He struggled with depression. I've heard, comment, I've heard, I've heard and read commentaries where he, he may have at some points in his life of ministry struggled with, with suicidal ideations. I mean, it's kind of that's what he asked for. He's not, he's, he's, he was an uncommon man, but he was not a so uncommon man that we can't relate to some of these things. And he was obedient to God once God let him understand that his purpose was done on earth. Imagine that. Imagine, right, everything's over, right? Everything's over and God tells you, you know what? Your time is done. You're going to go anoint your replacement because your time is over. And he was good with that. He was good with that. We'll, 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 we'll get back to that at the end of the class. What else? Let's talk about some highlights. I've mentioned a couple. We'll, we'll, right? He was fed by ravens. Fed by ravens. We'll see that in the first chapter. Funny thing is, anyway, I, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. But, but the ravens were probably getting the meat from the king's table. But we won't chase that rabbit. That's my opinion. Right? Where else are you going to get cooked food 25 miles from the palace in the middle of a three-year drought? And ravens to bring it to you. Um, he was fed miraculously by a widow. Later, he was fed twice by an angel. He initiated and ended a three-and-a-half-year drought, which God went along with. <laughs> by my word, right? <laughs> Elijah was an amazing character. I'm glad God doesn't listen to me like that sometimes because, yeah, I'm not Elijah. <laughs> Flour and oil were multiplied in the widow's home. The widow's son was resurrected. God answered from fire, with fire from heaven that consumed a sacrifice, a bunch of water and the stones it was on. Two captains and a hundred men were slain by fire. I think I mentioned that earlier. He miraculously outran Ahab's chariot, Second Kings, excuse me, in First Kings 18. God used him to part the Jordan and then at the end of his ministry, in King, 2 Kings chapter 2, he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah is one of those characters that as a kid, you cannot wait to hear about in Sunday school. But there was more to these highlights. There was more to these particular miracles. There was so much, so much more. So now, next question is, I guess, God's, Elijah, God's plan. What is God's plan here? Right? What is God's plan here? Why does Elijah show up when he does? Now, this is going to be the informational piece of the, of the, of the class. So I, I, if, if you want to open your Bibles, you can, or open up your, your, your pens at least to take down uh, Bible passages. Um, but we're going to get into a lot of stuff over the next 20 minutes or so. And so, why does he show up now? Well, first and foremost, right, there is a huge spiritual decline in Israel. And so, when we get, when we get here, right, we find, and so we see, a little, I, I did a little timeline here, starting with Moses. And so, starting with Moses in about 1440 BC, and the, the, it's, the dates are not accurate, um, Right, you start, now Moses gets the law, right? Samuel is one of the, 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 the final judge. Then they ask for a king. I skip Saul because we don't need to put him in this graphic. Right, king David comes in. He honors God in his way, right? God, he understands God's grace. He understands repentance. He loves God. And then, you notice Solomon's name starts to get a little pink there. Because then the decline of God's people begins, Right? And so let's look at Solomon. And folks, a lot of folks give Solomon a pass when speaking about the, the, the spiritual decline in Israel. We're not going to do that tonight. We're, we're, going to, we're going to get on Solomon a little bit. 
First Kings 11, 4, and eight, 4 through 8. <clears throat> Excuse me. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Who introduced officially idolatry to Israel? Solomon. We see judges do it in bits and pieces, but officially, from a government sanction, it's not Jeroboam, it's Solomon. And so it's not widespread. It's not for everyone. We know that Solomon feared God to some extent. We understand if we read at the end of Ecclesiastes, we assume that he repented. I'm not putting my arm in the fire for that, but we assume he repented. Right? We assume he woke up and said, man, I messed up. Everything's vanity. This is all a waste. Right? It's all wind. But he was the one who sanctioned idolatry in Israel, officially, from a government perspective. I'm the king. I'm going to build my wife's temples. I'm going to build my wife's shrines and, and, and idols, and we're going to do that, and I'm the king. And so, because of that, um, because of his sin, the kingdom is then divided after he dies. So, again, back to the map. When we talk about, and so I've given you a handy-dandy chart. And so that chart will help you, not as much today, maybe, but if you're going to study First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it'll be very helpful to you to see the split. And so I'm going to explain that split just for a quick second. So um, on this chart, you're going to see on the left-hand side, right, you're going to see on the top it says divided kingdom. I know the text is small, so if you can't see it, magnifying glass when you get home or, or whatever, but um, where I can email to you and you can blow it up if you'd like. Um, but on the left-hand side is Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom extends from Ramah down basically to the northern part of the Negev desert. This is Jerusalem. This is the two tribes down here. The rest of the 10 tribes that were split ended up going, right, were the northern tribes. This is what we see after 1 Kings, we see this being called, after 2 Samuel, excuse me, as referred to Israel, okay? So when you hear and you read in all these passages in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, when you hear Israel, the Bible is talking about this group over here. When you hear Judah, it's talking about this section over here. Got it? All right. And so they split. Solomon's son stayed with Judah, right? Roboam and Jeroboam, right? God called and gave him these 10 tribes. Now, that started a whole mess of trouble. There is, begins now in Israel, the northern kingdom, a procession of terrible leaders. Remember, we're talking about the spiritual decline, right? We're talking about the spiritual decline of Israel. So it, becomes, it starts this procession of terrible leaders, all of which ended up admired in idolatry. So starting with Jeroboam, there are 19 leaders, 19 different kings from the time Jeroboam takes reign of the northern kingdom to the time that, that Assyria comes in and destroys them. 19. Of those 19... How many kings, this is a trivia question, how many kings of those 19 ended in a positive light before the eyes of the Lord? Zero. Z what? Zero. Zero. Now, I'm not good at maths, but 
zero from 19 seems like a very low average. <laughs> and so, well, let's take a look at some of them, right? Let's, let's, talk, let, let's, let's, let's see Jeroboam, 1 Kings 14.9. Listen to what the Bible says about him. But you have done evil above all who were before you <laughs> and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Let's move over to the next chapter. 1 Kings 15. The next king, Nadab, his son. 1 Kings 15, 26. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father. And in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Oh, boy. Now, Nadab doesn't make it. He's killed. By the way, there was a bunch of murder, conspiracy. There were six assassinations. I mean, it was terrible. It was probably one of the worst periods, right, in Jewish history, right here. So Nadab gets killed. He's assassinated by this guy named Basha, 1 Kings 15, 34. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Right? Now, Elah was his son, 1 Kings 16, 13. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah, his son, which they sinned and in which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Well, right? So now we get to Zimri. Zimri kills Elah, right? And so Zimri, mind you, Zimri ruled Israel for seven days. Listen to this, seven days. This is what God has to say about Zimri in his seven-day reign. Because of his sins that he committed, 1 Kings 16, 19, <laughs> doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Seven days! How bad was that guy? And then... There's another couple assassinations, two captains against each other, and we end up with this guy named Omri. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he had made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. And then Omri has a child, and his son he names Ahab. What does the Bible say about Ahab? Oh, we're going to give him a few more verses. 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as, listen to this, here, I love verse 31. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, <clears throat> he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal with and worshipped him. He erected on the altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is a wooden statue for Asherah, made out of trees. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. 1 Kings 21, 25 says this about Jezebel, because, you know, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Now, we're not going to have any application into marriages tonight. I am not going to chase that rabbit. But Ahab was the worst. The Bible says it. It's not an opinion here. He was the worst. And he was worst already. And then he marries Jezebel. Right? The Bible says, as if it was a light thing that he was the worst, he marries Jezebel. Right? To top it off, right? That's, that's our, that would be our current vernacular. To top it off, he marries this Babylon, excuse me, this Sidonian, Phoenician priestess, princess. 
Now, there were 12 more kings, but we're not going to talk about them after. Because this is where Elijah shows up. At the worst point in the spiritual decline of Israel. Why else is this a big deal? Well, we hear a lot about Baal worship, right? We hear a lot about that. Let's talk about Baal worship and Asherah worship. Well, first of all, Baal, the name, meant Lord, owner. Baal was the name of several different versions of Canaanite deities, right? Um, But the most devout and the most serious cult of Baal worship came from the Phoenicians or the Sidonians. That is the most, if you, if you study this, if you go in, the most extensive history, the most extensive um, artifacts and historical documents and pieces of stone and pottery depicting Baal, you will find that comes from excavations of Phoenician lands. They were into their Baal. Baal is the actual pronunciation, but I'm not Phoenician. He was the universal God of fertility and life. Lower G, lowercase g. He had various titles. Prince, Lord of the Earth. He was known as a storm god. He who rides on the clouds. That was how the Hebrews would name him. He was the king of the gods. In their mythology, in Phoenician mythology, he seized divine kingship from the Canaanite sea god, Yem. Very powerful god. Very prominent god as well. We see Yem in different iterations. If you remember in book of, in, in 1 Samuel, Dagon. Right? That's one of the iterations. It, it's all, it all connects. But this Baal in their mythology, wrestles with all these different gods. Such a powerful deity he was in these cultures that his mythology, right, his deity would evolve and be be embraced by the Greeks. Guess who Baal became in Greek mythology? Zeus. He was worshipped. His worship, excuse me, his temple worship was celebrated by sexual immorality, rape, incest. Incest was a big deal. I'll explain why in a second. Female prostitution. Now, under Baal, under Baal worship, polytheism was allowed, even encouraged. So why would there be an issue in Israel? Problem was, while polytheism, and that's the, the worship of more than one God, right? Monotheism, the worship of one God. So while it was encouraged under the worship of Baal, the problem was, okay, that there could be within Baal's dominance, within Baal's religious purview, no other dominant deity. Following? Right? I remember I used to watch... I don't know, kids are soft nowadays. When I was a kid, we used to watch a Highlander, a show called Highlander. Anybody ever see it? The, the point is that they fight until someone's beheaded. And at the end, right, the, the, the winner, he gets there, he says, there could only be one. And that was the gist of this, right? As far as Baal was concerned, there could be only one ultimate deity. So now, in a monotheistic belief system that was Judaism, that is Judaism, where I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me, is kind of right off the script from the Ten Commandments, right? I am one, I'm it, there's no one else but me, and a religious structure that allows for polytheism, but will not permit someone else to be the ultimate deity. That's a problem in Baal worship. Notice, up to now, it had been okay. The worship of Chemosh, the worship of Molech, the worship of Astaroth, it was okay. There were little skirmishes here and there. There were battles. There was this, there, there was conflict. 
But this was a different beast because now this was an intolerant religion led by a zealot, a zealous priestess who happened to be the queen of Israel and who happened to have complete control and domination of her husband, the king. That's the difference. And so when we see Elijah jump into the fray, we recognize that this is not your run-of-the-mill idolatry. This is not just a few high places. This is not idolatry in distant areas, in wooded areas in the trees where it was accustomed to happen. This was the ruler of the nation attempting to make this religion mainstream at any cost, including the lives of anyone who would defend the name of Yahweh. Which then makes some of Elijah's latter reactions, right, when he's running from fleeing from Jezebel, he says, oh, they've killed all the prophets. So no, there's 7,000 left. They have not bent their knee to battle. But he, in his mind, was alone. He, in his mind, was afraid, right, at that point. He understood what was at stake. She was killing the prophets of Israel. She was killing the priests of Israel. And this is, <laughs> this is where it's at. Now, Asherah, here's where the, here's, here's where it gets real twisted. Asherah is the mother of Baal. Right? She's the wife of God El, who in Phoenician mythology, Baal kills, kills his own father, the ultimate God. Following? And then takes his mother as his wife. And so she brings the very worst version of Asherah, right, who was the, known as the mother goddess and goddess of fertility. Her statues were made out of wood, and the worship involved orgies, male prostitution, and divination. And this was becoming the official religion of Israel. Jezebel, as I said, was a priestess and a zealot of Baal and Asherah. You don't believe me? 1 Kings 18, 19. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me. This is when Elijah is inviting them to the Mount Carmel. He said, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You're eating at the king's, at the queen's table? What? It's a serious business. That's what Elijah walks into. There's no time for introductions. There's no time for genealogy, right? And had God left Ahab and Jezebel unchecked, which we know in his divine providence, he would never have done. He has never done that. There would have been no worship of God left in all of Israel. She would have exterminated every last person. But God sends Elijah. He sends Elijah to confront this great evil in this terrible time, in this terrible time of suffering, in this terrible time of spiritual decline in Israel. So I can't continue to get into Elijah's story because then I'm going to step on somebody's toes, though I'd love to, Mark. Elijah, the lesson. What can we learn from Elijah? What can we learn? Well, I'm going to take this two points. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend some time in each. First point is we learn that God can use broken people. Because boy, Elijah was broken. Elijah struggled with some things. He wasn't fully polished. <laughs> He wasn't fully polished. He struggled with life's difficulties. Based on a couple of his interactions, and even though God went along with him and honored the word of the prophet and honored the spirit of the prophet, there was still some 
passions with which Elijah acted upon. He's very passionate in his actions and and took measures that we may seem a bit heavy-handed. Like, you know, burning 50 soldiers twice. Twice. Right, where the third, where the third, the third group comes, wait, 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 please, I come up, don't, don't do it. He had issues. And then we see those issues, right? When 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 when, when he chases him. When Jezebel chases him after they kill the king, uh, excuse me, the kill the prophets of Baal and Asherah. He had issues because do you know what the people were chanting when they killed the prophets of Baal and Asherah? The Lord is our God. What did I say Elijah's name was? The Lord is my God. Could you imagine the high of having the rain come? Beating the king's chariot? Seeing God respond with fire and having a nation behind you chanting what was your name to play on words. But that's what they were saying, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. The Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. The Lord is our God. And then within a few hours, running for your life because you just devastated the entire religious system of Baal and Asherah in Israel. And now Jezebel is coming for you. And he sits there on his own in a cave, looking up to God and saying, I want to die. Pit of depression, the pit of sadness, the pit of dissatisfaction, struggling with life's moments, even maybe desiring suicide. But even at that juncture, God still had grace and mercy on him and used him. And it teaches us that God can still deal with messed up people like you and me. Praise God for that. Praise God that he does not require perfection from me. And that perfection was attained by his son, Jesus Christ. In his perfect, active, and passive obedience on the cross of Calvary. Hallelujah to that. God can still help us serve him graciously even when it seems that our season of ministry and service is ending. Some of you don't really know my story, but before coming here, I was a pastor for my latest stint was 13 years or so. And I burned out. Pastor Mark knows the story well. We moved down here. I found this show. I said, this place is huge. Perfect place for me to hide. There are some of us in this room that probably carry the burden of my season of ministry is over. There are some of us maybe in this room are struggling because what they could once do, you can no longer do. The things that you were able to do, the places you were able to go, the activities that you were able to engage in in service, you no longer can. That's okay. Because the Bible teaches us that there is a time for everything, a season for everything. And I may not, I may have have preached every Sunday for 13 years. That's maybe not what I do anymore. Now I teach life group every Sunday for the last five years. God's a good God, and sometime, maybe that won't be it. Maybe it'll be serving the elderly, serving children, teaching third grade on 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Praise God, because he brings us through different seasons. And what I did yesterday is not necessarily what I need to do today, but God can use us still. You have a phone? 
you can call someone and pray with them. You have a phone, you can call someone and encourage someone. And be a wise counsel, be an ear, be a shoulder to someone who needs your experience, your wisdom, your love, your grace, your expertise, the knowledge that God has given you. God can still use us even when we think our season is over. And again, hallelujah to that. Second point. Familiar image. Our culture is in spiritual decline. We are in 2023, April 26, 2023. And my goodness, there are things that we talk about today five, that five years ago would not have been fathomable. I mean, unimaginable. I don't need to get into specifics. I kind of started off with that. But there are other things. It's not just this new sexual revolution or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's the full-on blatant rebellion against God and everything that he has said, done, and created. There's rebellion against God, his people, his nature. I'm not a tree hugger by any means. I use plastic bags. But we have been irresponsible. And it comes to a head. All of it. All of it. There is not an area of creation. There is not an area of humankind of our existence here on earth that, is, that not only has been touched and contaminated by original sin, but is being devoured by it. Devoured by it. from the White House to the outhouse. No pun intended, but it works. That is the, we are in serious, serious trouble. Like Elijah, in his time, we need women, we need men and women of God today to stand in the gap and boldly stand for God's holy word. Amen. That's the other thing we can learn from Elijah. Earlier I started, as presidential election season comes, we need men and women to stand for not what is blue or red, but what is God's agenda. Are we able to see past a political platform? Are we able to see past a politician? I'm not telling you who to vote for. But I'm telling you that guy you're voting for and that guy I'm voting for is probably not a Christian. Regardless of his platform. There wasn't a Christian on the 2016 ticket. There wasn't a Christian on the 2020 ticket. And there's not going to be a Christian on the 2024 ticket. Let us understand that these are men, sinful men, after their own achievements, after their own desires. And when we focus on the men and we focus on the men and the individual, we lose the opportunity to share the truth of God's gospel that transcends blue and red, that transcends Republican and Democrat, that transcends all of it. God is not interested in your knowledge of, of political policy foreign policy, economic policy. He is interested in your ability and knowledge to share the gospel with a world who is going to hell by the millions every second. That is God's foremost interest. He did not say, go ye therefore and vote. He said, go ye therefore. Right? And make disciples. How? Preaching, teaching, and baptizing. That's his interest. Vote your conscience, but share the word of God. Vote your conscience, but share the gospel of Jesus Christ. As society decays, 
Are we able? These are questions. Are we able to sacrifice our comforts? Our weekly routines for the sake of a world that needs to hear the gospel. The world is going to hell. I'll say that again. The world is going to hell. Our neighbors are going to hell. Our coworkers are going to hell. People in our community are going to hell. Does that bother us? Again, that's not a, that's a question. Does that bother me? And if it does, does it bother me enough for me to do something about it? Does it? Is God going to concern himself with soccer games and baseball games and recitals? And I'm not saying not to go and go out and not to get a child involved in sports. I'm not saying that. Just asking, what is God calling us to do while this world burns around us, while our culture slides into the worst decline in human history? My final question and the final thing I think we can learn from Elijah is are we prepared to place our well-being to risk our income, even our life at risk for the greatest cause of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or will we remain silent as the world succumbs to its sin and depravity? I think I've figured out some things I can learn from Elijah. Look at me. Thank you.